Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to deal with two mother-son pairs um, this morning. And very briefly, if you're not familiar with, with the biblical narrative, uh, there was a guy named Abraham, um, and uh, he had a wife, Sarah, and they have a son, Isaac. Uh, Abraham is given a special covenant with God. Uh, that God will make him the father of many nations, but he only has he has two sons, um, uh, one uh, by Hagar, who is his uh, his wife's handmaiden. You can read the the handout on what all that meant and how when you got married you got a bonus wife, um, and then uh, and then there was and then there was Isaac, and Isaac marries uh, Rebecca, um, and uh, they uh, have trouble having children, but eventually they have um, they have two sons. Uh, Jacob and Esau, who are twins. Um, Esau is the older one. Um, his name means red or, or burly man, basically. Um, and Jacob's me- name uh, means heel grabber or uh, trickster. Um, and so any of you that have two sons know that those profiles probably fit pretty close. Um, and, uh, and so they're, they were, they're always at odds. Um, and Jacob eventually he he steals Esau's uh, birthright, which is what the firstborn son um, had in terms of his inheritance um, and place in the house. Esau is going to kill him, so Jacob's mother tells him to to leave um, to to go north um, to the home of his um, her brother, who is his uncle and also his second cousin once removed um twice removed and i think i don't know anyway and and he goes and goes to laban his uncle he meets laban's daughters who are his cousins and also somehow bizarrely cousins from another direction um and because and he falls in love with one of them rachel um but it's a package deal and laban tricks him and so Jacob marries the older sister, Leah, who the Bible describes as um, fleshy. All right. And then, uh, and then his, and then Rachel, the younger wife, is, the younger sister, is is considered beautiful. And and so there's this, um, there's this, uh, there's actually this weird phrase having to do with Leah's eyes. We're not going to get into it, but um, but he, so anyway, he marries these two women. Uh, these two sisters, seven years apart, he marries them seven years apart. Both of them come with a handmaiden. Um, so he really gets four wives for the price of one. And uh, Rich Mullins actually wrote a song about this. It was a great song called The World as Best as I Can Remember It. And, uh, you know, so Jacob, he got Rachel and a whole house full of kids. Um, and he made his way back to the promised land. So he, he has Leah, and she's got a handmaid, and then Rachel, his, his, the wife he actually wanted, and she's got a handmaid. And then what happens is uh, Jacob it shows favoritism to Rachel, and so God doesn't allow her to have children. Well, he's got three other wives, so Jacob goes ahead and has ten other sons. All right? Um, he has ten sons with... Leah and the two handmaidens, um, and then where we're going to come in is is uh, Rachel's son Joseph. And if you are familiar with Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, that is a completely unbiblical account of Joseph, but same person. Uh, so the book of Genesis in chapter thirty, Genesis chapter thirty. Um, if you really want to mess with people, 
Uh, you know how Joseph has the multicolored coat and all that stuff, and everybody talks about that. You know, the Hebrew word actually means long-sleeved cloak, not multicolored. So you can take that for what you want. And it was the attire of um, unmarried women, so you can also take that for what you want. Um, but anyway, Genesis chapter 30. Uh, Genesis chapter 30. Um, it, there's this, this moment, verse 1, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children. So she has a bunch of other kids. Um, we got this whole thing, and then down in verse 20, we encounter this line. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb, and she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Now, first of all, how would you like to be the kid who was named, I can't wait to have another kid? Because that's Joseph's name. He's the first of hopefully two. Now, eventually she does have a second son, a Benjamin. She dies in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin. And she's buried um, just outside of what is today Bethlehem in Israel. Um, and, and there's a site that they claim is Rachel's tomb, and we don't know whether it is or not. But um, So she finally has this son named Joseph. Now, if you're familiar with the story, you know that Joseph goes on. He upsets his brothers because he's a dreamer. He has all these dreams of them bowing down to him. His brothers get mad. They throw him in a pit. They sell him to the Midianites. He goes to Egypt. He spends some time there. A woman tries to seduce him. He gets thrown into jail and eventually becomes the advisor to the pharaoh. It's a great story, an amazing story about Joseph, and um, and uh, I'm actually I'm working on I'm working on some stuff on on him in one of the classes that I'm getting ready to take in the spring, uh, and uh, and kind of the 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 whole context of what's going on with Joseph. It's a really fascinating um, idea the way he gets renamed and um, his relationship to priests. Anyway, that has nothing to do with the message. Stop talking about it, Eric. Move on. All right, so um, Rachel. Uh, is married to Joseph long enough. Now, Joseph spends 21 years uh, working for his uncle Laban to get Rachel and Leah as uh, his spouses. In the process, uh, Leah, uh, Leah, um, Leah, no, Leah, Princess Leah, that's something else. Uh, Leah um, and the two handmaidens have these 10 other sons and a daughter named Dinah. um, And... Um, And then Joseph is born, and then when Joseph is born, Laban decides to throw him out, so they have to move out. So we know that Jacob Jacob and his wives have been living with his uncle uh, slash father-in-law slash cousin um, for 20 years or so. And in that time... Uh, the brothers, all they, they, the brothers and Dinah, they all mature, they all grow up, and they, some of them get married. And Judah's, uh, there's several older brothers, and uh, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and the fourth brother is a guy named Judah. I mean, we're going to encounter him in the second uh, set of husbands and wives, or uh, uh, mothers and, and sons. That's a confusion you do not want to make. <clears throat> so. Rachel is Jacob's favorite wife, but she has his second to last and last sons. And when you read that story, if you put yourself in the context of Rachel and you realize just how awful it must have been for her to watch the the wife that Jacob didn't want have all these children, 
And these handmaidens have all of these children, and Rachel doesn't have any children, and she doesn't know why. See, it's important that we understand when we read the text, we are reading this story told in hindsight. When, Ra- when Rachel's going through this, it's not like there's a narrator reading the King James Bible over her life explaining what's going on. She doesn't know why she's barren. She doesn't know that, that her actions and Jacob's actions and, and there's envy and, and stuff going on have, have basically uh, pushed out God's blessing from her life, just pushed it forward. It's not that God doesn't care. It's just that he's dealing with their jealousy, their, their bitterness, their, their discontent. And in that moment, as, as Rachel's going through that year after year, childbirth after child, I mean, can you, ima- can you imagine being the favored wife in a household with 11 kids that aren't yours? Just, just imagine her life. But at some point, the scriptures say that God remembered Rachel. Now, that does not mean that God had forgotten about Rachel. When we read that, that English word remembered, we tend to, oh, well, then he remembered. Oh, yeah, I got Rachel. I got to take care of her. But rather, God is orchestrating the events in the, of Jacob's life, and now is the time that God is going to give her a son. And God gives her Joseph when the right time comes, when she apparently is content and is praying. I mean, we, we read this line. It says uh, in verse 22, God remembered Rachel and God listened to her. So she's, she's praying for God to, to mend her womb, to, to open, to give her the opportunity. She's, she's finally sorted through all of what was going on. And I really wish that we, we had more of a lens into this household. It is a, you can read through this chapter. It is a, an interesting group of people, these sons. And, and he called his name, and she, she finally has a son, and she calls him Joseph. She says, may the Lord add to me another son. But she finally gets what she's been waiting for. And from her point of view, um, it's so late in life. It's, 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 it's after. Everybody else has had kids. Joseph has zero chance of inheriting anything in this situation. All right, the, the, older sons, the older sons are already old enough that they've received their inheritance. They're already building homes of their own. They already have children. We know that Judah has, um, Judah has three sons um, at some point of marriageable age comes up. Um, so, so not right now, but, but they're already, he's already got kids and he's already got a wife and there's, there's all this stuff. Well, not yet, but he will. Um, and we look at this and we go, okay, well, if God was going to provide Joseph to Rachel the whole time, why did he wait so long? And we could look at it from the human point of view, the short-term point of view, and we could go, well, it's because Rachel wasn't ready to have Joseph yet. But remember I told you the whole story about Joseph and how he, become, he goes to Egypt and eventually there's this famine, there's a seven-year-long famine, and the people of Israel, the sons of Israel and their children and their households, they have to go to Egypt or they're going to die and thankfully, because Joseph is there in Egypt and, and involved in the, uh, the advisor to Pharaoh, he's able to save his brothers and their entire family and his father and everybody involved. Well, you realize if Joseph had been born earlier, 
If he was older, that wouldn't have happened. See, one of the things that happens with Joseph is he's so young when he gets sold into captivity. And he apparently is a a pretty good-looking young man um, that he gets picked up to be a household slave. And he's an intelligent guy, and so he gets to be the manager of households. If he had been an older guy, uh, he would have never been bought as a slave. They would they wouldn't have picked him up if he had been in his and if he had been much older than he was. And he's probably he's in his early teens when he's when he's taken prisoner. And as weird as it seems, when we look at this, we realize that that God's timing. What looks like taking forever from our point of view, what looks like never fulfilling his promise, what looks like never providing for us, God's timing is always on a bigger scale than our expectations. God is always working um, at a scale we really can't perceive. And even though we stumble and bumble and make mistakes and fail and we all do it, God is working even in that to bring us to a place where he can be a blessing to us and we can be a blessing to others. And when we look at Israel and we look at the Messiah, we realize that for generations after generation, the people of Israel were saying, oh, the Messiah should come now. If only we had the Messiah now. But it wasn't until the right time, the appointed time that God sent his son. And we can sit and talk about it. I mean, wouldn't it have made more sense if God had just sent Jesus like like right after Adam and Eve sinned, right? I mean, just short circuit the whole deal and just let's just fix things. Why wait as long as he waited? Because God is working on a scale we're not working on. We go through life and we we live our lives in these segmented days. Now, now honestly, as the pandemic has gone, the segments have started to kind of blur together. All right. I mean, if you're like me, you wake up uh, on Monday. I was so convinced that Monday was Tuesday. I drove to Manchester to meet a friend of mine, even though my calendar didn't say that I was meeting him. I added the meeting to my calendar on Monday. That was on Tuesday. It just, I was just completely confused. So I got to sit in a park in Manchester for a little while. Um, just, just, there's just stuff that, that we, we, we go through our lives and it's always this linear thing and whatever is we're going on right now, we want a solution to it right this moment. We want to get through whatever we're getting through. But God is working on a bigger scale. I want to take that and Rachel and Joseph and I want to make it even worse. So I want to look at Joseph's older brother, Judah, and his kids, particularly his daughter-in-law, who has his children. Genesis chapter 38 is the second mother and children stumbling toward promise. This is probably one of the one of my top five most troubling stories in the Bible. Um, there's another one about one of David's sons and his half sister. You encounter that in Second Samuel. I'll let you guys find that. But this is up there. 
Genesis chapter 38 and verse 1. It happened at that time. Now, Joseph is in Egypt. Um, I should Let me just rewind a little bit. So remember when I said that Joseph uh, was sold into slavery. Two of Joseph's brothers try to kind of keep the other eight from killing him. Now, if you have more than one son, you know that the threat of one of them doing serious bodily harm to the others is pretty common. But I don't think you've ever gotten to the point where some of your kids threw one of your kids into a pit and tried to think of ways to kill him so that the parents wouldn't figure it out. That's what's going on. So Joseph has two brothers who are trying to help him out. The oldest is Reuben. Reuben's trying to kind of diffuse the situation. We don't know exactly what he was doing, but he was trying to figure out a way to get around it. Judah knows that the other guys are, gonna, are, are looking to kill Joseph. Um, and so Judah comes up with a brilliant idea to sell him into slavery. It's Judah's idea. He goes, okay, guys, let's not kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery. Now, I have to imagine that later on, he and Reuben had a conversation where Reuben went, I'm not sure this worked out. I'm not sure your plan was, was ideal. Anyway, Judah convinces the other brothers to sell Ju- Jake, Joseph into slavery. So this young man, this young teenager gets hauled up out of the pit, given to a group of Midianites. He's taken off to Egypt. And then there's this interesting passage, all right? In chapter, uh, in fact, you can read the the end of chapter 37. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him, Joseph, in Egypt to Potiphar, the officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers. It seems like what happens here is that Judah is leaves the highlands, the Judean highlands, the, 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 the highlands of eastern Israel. He leaves it, and he's trying to go down and catch them. That's basically what he's doing. He went down. When it says he went down, it literally means he came down out of the mountains to the plain, uh, uh, the, the plain on, the, on the western side of Israel, what is today, uh, what in those days would have been considered Philistia. Um, today, today it's, it's not quite the, it's not quite the Gaza Strip, but he's almost there. Um, and he, he comes down to this place, um, and, called Adalim, um, and he, he's trying to get, it seems like he's trying to kind of get down there and maybe buy Joseph back or something. I'm not sure exactly what he's doing, but for some reason he doesn't manage to do it, and instead he turns aside to a certain Adalimite whose name was Hira. And there, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her and conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. Then she conceived again and bore a son, and he called his name Onan. And yet again, he bore a son, and he called his name Shelah. So clearly, Judah has forgotten about Joseph at this point. All right? Um, and uh, and he lives in Chesib, all right? Um, when she, Judah was in Hesiv when she bore him. Now, Hesiv is, is down this region, all right? It's about 50 miles away from Jacob's house where Jacob lived um, in Shechem. And he has these three sons. And then his sons get older, and um, his oldest son, he marries him to a, a, a woman, a Canaanite woman named Tamar. And he died. So Judah marries him, her to his second son, and he died. 
And then Judah, who is worried, it seems to be that he's worried that Tamar is killing his sons, says to her, why don't you go live with your father, and when my third son, my youngest son, um, uh, uh, Shelah, is old enough, I'll, I'll call for you and you can come back and marry him. This is called leveret marriage. It's in the, it's in the, the, the handout. And the idea is to raise sons to the, the dead son. Well, Shelah gets old enough and Tamar is still single. She knows he's old enough to marry. Now, by old enough to marry, he's probably 14 or 15, maybe as old as 20. And, of course, she was married to his older siblings, so she's a little bit older. No marriage proposal forthcoming. So she does what any reasonable woman would do. She disguises herself as a prostitute, hides out on the side of the road, and gets pregnant from Judah. That's what she does. And then when Judah finds out, I love this, when Judah finds out that she's pregnant, he tells his guys, he tells his men, go get her, she must burn. And then she goes, well, I'm pregnant from the guy that gave me these. And she holds out Judah's signet and his cane. And Judah goes, oh, well, then, let's forget about that punishment. (laughs) And she has twins. And uh, the oldest of those sons is the ancestor of David. Interesting situation. Um, as far as we know, her, his third son, uh, Shelah, never has children. But Judah has an illicit relationship with... I, I love the fact that he... The fact that he would have had an illicit relationship with a prostitute is the preferred version of this story. She winds up being his daughter-in-law, who he then takes as wife, which makes their children their own grandchildren. Not really. Uh, but, but there's all these complicated relationships going on. This is why we don't marry in families anymore. Um, but anyway, uh, Judah, she, she's desperate. She's afraid. She's ashamed. Um, and, and she chooses a course of action that is just so, to us, so unbelievably foreign. And yet, if you read the story, this, this is the crazy thing. If you read the story, when it is revealed to Judah that it was his daughter-in-law, look at what he says. Uh, Genesis chapter 38, um, in verse 26, Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I am. Now, he hasn't set the bar very high. But he recognizes that he had made a promise to her that he intentionally violated. And so she took a course of action that maybe was not ideal, but resulted in fulfilling the promise that he had made. And so in a way, she restores the balance of the whole situation. Not the way I would do it, but this is the situation. Now, the irony of the whole thing is that Judah was afraid that Tamar was going to kill his third son. That whoever touched Tamar winds up dying. So he winds up being the one who touches her. Judah was, uh, and as a result, 
And this, this will wrap your brain into, into boxes. But the scorned daughter-in-law who played the prostitute to get impregnated by her father-in-law becomes the ancestor of Jesus. When people were going through this, Judah was not looking at this going, wow, God has provided a way. I guarantee you that was not what he was saying. He was probably saying, I got caught, make sure my wife doesn't find out. But generations later, when when these stories are written down and recorded, and with the benefit of hindsight, people can look back and see that God was at work even in the failures, stumblings, and sin to bring about his purposes. Now, we don't stumble and fail because no matter what we do, God is going to do things. We don't just sit there and go, ah, you know, Paul actually says, should we sin that God, that, that, um, should we sin that, that grace may abound? God forbid. He says, no, that absolutely is not what we do. But even when we stumble and fall, and I mentioned this last week, even when we stumble and fall, even when we fail, even when we blow it a million ways, God is still at work. God uses even our weaknesses and sin. Now that doesn't sanctify our sin, but it tells us that God works through us, in us, for us, by us. But what sin does although God works through it, is it brings chaos. Look at the chaos of this family. Joseph, Jacob, the brothers, Judah, deceit, lying, trickery, prostitution, people being sold into slavery. Everything that could possibly... This is like an episode of the worst soap opera you have ever seen. I don't know how they even kept straight who was who and when. And yet God is at work. But it's only when God's purposes are revealed that we can make any sense of the chaos we create. See, when we, when we sin, and there are implications of our sin, and there are results of our sin, when we sin and then we, we repent, that doesn't mean suddenly the chaos stops. That it's a reset button. I know that so many people think that they can just pray and, and ask for forgiveness for a sin and it just resets everything. I mean, one of the, one of the important things you, you, we always have to learn. I mean, every married person learns this. You can apologize for it, but after you said it, it's said. It is still going to be said. And so... 
And it's the same thing with this really complicated chaos of their lives. They can repent, things can get right, God can be at work, but it's still going to be chaos. And it's only in hindsight, and to be honest, it's only generations later that people can go back and look at it and say, ah, God was at work. So if there's a piece of practical advice I would give you, first and foremost, it would be marry one person, stay married to that person, don't hang out with prostitutes. My, my second piece of advice would be, hopefully nobody's in that situation, but as we're, we're dealing with the chaos of our lives and the reality of sin, you don't want to give up the expectation of an understanding But at the same time, don't be surprised if it doesn't make sense. If life doesn't resolve, if there aren't nice, neat, hallmark movie buttons and and bows at the end of your, your thing, it's going to take a while for the chaos to sort. Sin doesn't, the the implications of sin don't just go away because we fix the problem. And God's purposes are not defined by minutes, but by ages. Although God will use our weaknesses and stumblings, sometimes our greatest act of faith is to be true to our repentance in the chaos of the consequences. Be honest. How many times you repented of a sin, it didn't immediately fix the problem, and you were tempted to go, oh well, might as well just go back to it. Didn't make my life any better. But the reality is, we have to be faithful even in the chaos of our own making. It's fascinating to me that Judah winds up being the ancestor of Jesus. He really doesn't deserve it. I mean, this, on a list of sins, this one's pretty high. It amazes me, it it, it baffles me that people like David are lifted up in the Bible as exemplars as a man after God's own heart, when the guy managed to break over half of the Ten Commandments in one day. We live with the chaos. We have to be faithful through it. So if you're dealing with a a life situation where there was sin in your life, you've repented, you've been forgiven of it, you're moving forward, but there's still implications and consequences... The reality is, that is life. And our expectation and hope is not for immediate fix, but for God's glory in the long run. I would not want to be a part of this family. But God ultimately used them for his eternal purposes. Let's pray. Father, help us to endure the chaos of this world. Sometimes we live in the chaos of our own doing. Sometimes we live in the chaos of others' doing. But all through it, you are calling us to faithfulness. 
faithfulness to you, faithfulness to your word, faithfulness to the, the covenants that we have entered into. Our lives are not always easy and we don't always see an end game. But Lord, help us to be true to you. Knowing and believing that your purposes will be completed. That even our weakness and our stumbling is, is an instrument and a tool in your hand. Lord, strengthen us in your spirit. Guide us and direct us and teach us. Take us from this place to go out into the world again to face the challenges that we will face. And Lord, no matter what, to bring glory to your name. We pray this all in Jesus' name.